This is Denise Thomas with the World Trade Center, Arkansas. Today, we're bringing to you another Gateways podcast. This webinar is our second annual World Trade Month event hosted by World Trade Center, Arkansas and our wonderful partners, the Northwest Arkansas Council and Squire Patton Boggs, a global law firm. Our guests today include Rodney Slater as moderator, former U.S. Secretary of Transportation, Matthew Kirk, a former U.K. Ambassador and International Affairs Advisor for Squire Patton Boggs, Frank Wiesner, former U.S. Ambassador, International Affairs Advisor for Squire Patton Boggs, Frank Simolis, partner at Squire Patton Boggs, Ludmila Kasalki, partner at Squire Patton Boggs, and Rodney Emery, a principal at Squire Patton Boggs. Today, you're gonna learn some wonderful information about trade and state of affairs in the United States and how that affects our wonderful state of Arkansas. Rodney, I wanna thank you and your guests for being here, and I'm gonna turn it over to you. But with that, let me just turn immediately to um, uh, Ambassador Wisner. Uh, by the way, he's he said that um, we can all call him Frank, <laughs> and we'll do that over the course of the session with him. But uh, uh, but uh, but, Mr. Ambassador, I want in bringing you on uh, to just acknowledge uh, all of the knowledge, wisdom, and expertise that you bring to our discussion today. And thank you for being with us, uh, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, sir. Ms. Carter, thank you. Denise Thomas, thank you. It's a real privilege to be invited to join the Arkansas World Trade Center uh, for this conversation today um, and to be asked to address an issue of great moment to the United States where American interests are directly involved, the very security of Europe for which American soldiers died between uh, in the early 1940s, the security of Europe and indeed overall the global order, all are at stake. For the crisis that we face today in Ukraine, now entering, headed into its fourth month with no end in sight, has today taken a really ugly turn as Russia intensifies its military operations in the eastern and southern portions of Ukraine, aiming at connecting its territorial uh, its territory in, in Crimea with the Donbass, which it had seized earlier, uh, with other areas that would link Russia, Russian-speaking areas to Russia itself and to Crimea. Uh, going as far, for those who have a map easily at hand, as Odessa. And turning to the point that Rodney made sparking in the most extraordinary manner, uh, the reaction of the Ukrainian government and people in a manner unprecedented and unforeseen, quite frankly, sparking as well a unified Western position, NATO nations, the alliance, NATO alliance has risen to the challenge by providing military equipment to Ukraine to defend itself and governments behind them adopting massive, unprecedented economic sanctions against Russia for the aggression. So we face today 
a crisis. It's not a crisis that began yesterday morning. In fact, by my counting, it began in 1989 with the end of the Cold War. And what we are watching today is the a continuum of the decline of the old Soviet empire as Russia seeks to restore its position in the world. But I don't, don't want to let us off the hook entirely for we had as America and as Western nations some agency in this matter, the intention during the Clinton administration followed by the Bush administration to work with our European allies to extend NATO's boundaries eastward to incorporate the former uh, satellites of the erstwhile Soviet Union to incorporate uh, the Baltic states, Romania, Bulgaria in a second wave. And finally, to consider the possibility of incorporating Ukraine and Georgia. All of this produced an increasingly sharp reaction from Moscow, one born of paranoia, a nation that is known invasion and reacts very sensitively to the approach of other powers to Russia's borders. But basically, and I think all of us have to recognize it, this is a crisis that results from one man, Vladimir Putin, a very shrewd, tough Russian leader whose core objective is to restore Russia's greatness, to make certain that Russia of the czars, not of the communists, comes back center stage in the world, that Russia overcomes what he calls the humiliation of the Cold War, what Putin describes as the greatest geostrategic <clears throat> uh, mistake or problem of the 20th century, the breakup of the Soviet Union. So here we stand today uh, with a Putin determined to prosecute a war, a war he had to judge on timing. I think he observed the United States, saw division in our politics, was not at all sure we had, were up to facing him off. He saw weakness and division among European nations. He watched the debacle of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. But then particularly in the early part of this year, he formed a very important strategically significant alliance with China that gave him support to his back to engage in the undertaking that we're currently watching. So now we're in full-scale war and the risks are apparent. Uh, the risks are not only the tragic uh, tragedy the people of Ukraine will face, but there is a possibility this war could spread as NATO continues to send arms across the border, uh, across NATO's borders into Ukraine. You can imagine Russia striking at those supply lines involving then NATO and our Article 5 agreement to defend NATO members. We've also seen threats of nuclear and chemical weapon use in the Ukraine conflict. While I don't believe they're imminent, nonetheless, the threat is real and has roiled opinion across the West. And now we've seen another phenomenon, five million refugees flowing out of Ukraine, really 
putting pressures of unimaginable sorts on Western European nations and Eastern European nations, Poland and the border states facing particularly harsh circumstances with the massive arrival of Ukrainian refugees. But I'm afraid it's more than immediate local risks that all of us have to take into account. We are now seeing the growing impact of the Ukraine crisis, bringing about a virtual end to the economic recovery that we anticipated would come about as COVID abated. We are seeing a real blow, another blow to globalization. We're seeing immediately the problem of <clears throat> inflation that's affected all of our countries, this country in included. We're seeing disrupted energy markets. Europe will be a particular target of that, of that disruption. We're seeing a breakdown in food and fertilizer markets that will put populations across the globe at risk of malnutrition. We're seeing a breakdown in minerals markets for the highly sensitive rare earths and other nickels and uh, titaniums that are required to turn over a modern high-tech industry. And we're seeing disruption to financial sectors. In fact, it's quite possible Russia's own uh, central bank will have to declare a default the first since the outbreak of communist rule in Russia in the early 1920s with spin-off effects on finance across the globe. So the road ahead is not pretty. It almost certainly does not involve a victory for the Russians. They are gonna be faced even if they get short-term advantages with long-term challenges to their hold on these border regions of Ukraine. Nor does it frankly appear to me there's going to be a Russian defeat, neither a Russian victory nor a Russian defeat. Uh, and I'm afraid to say I see no immediate prospects for a negotiated settlement that would bring this crisis to an end. In fact, what I see and what I think all of us in business, in Arkansas, the rest of the country have to face is that we're looking at a frozen conflict, one that could last literally months, if not years, with huge disruptive effects on our lives, our businesses, the overall economy, and the global order. So here we are with a protracted conflict. Sanctions will continue, and they will stress economic recovery. There will be stress of a political sort on the NATO alliance as European countries struggle to keep their commitments to Ukraine and to the alliance and at the same time deal with inflationary and <clears throat> economic problems domestically. So we're now facing the future and I regret to say that I see it as a frozen conflict or a stalemate, but I think there are fundamental lessons that I as uh, an observer of international affairs see as really important for the United States. We find ourselves, ladies and gentlemen, at a moment in our history in which great power conflict has returned center stage in world affairs. 
we're seeing a return of great power conflict in the, in the form of China, now in the form of Russia. And it's a world that's increasingly divided between the United States, our allies on the one hand, authoritarians on the other, but with a huge slice of the world standing in between, not wishing to put their sovereignty at risk, seeing the risk of any state becoming too powerful. And that includes concerns about the uses of American power. What the world at large wants outside NATO and Russia and China is a real balance of power where the security of the Indias, the Mexicos, the Brazils, the Indonesias are all assured by a balance between the great contending great power uh, sources in the, in the current world order. And the United States can't fix that alone. It's not a hegemon. We can't fix the global balance on our own. We're seated at the global high table, but we're not seated at the head of it. We have to be smart if we're gonna bring the world along with us. And so I think our objectives as a nation need to be the reestablishment of global order so that economies can thrive and our people can prosper. We need balance. We need balance. We can't, and I part company with our administration in talking about defeating or weakening Russia. Russia will be part in the long run of that balance. The balance is only obtained when the great powers that are increasingly in conflict come back into some state of order and deterrence, and we can chart a way forward for the world at large. Uh, Denise and Ms. Carter and Rodney, let me stop there and turn the floor back over to you all. Well, thank you, uh, Ambassador Wisner. Uh, I see that Ambassador Kirk has, has joined us, and we uh, said a few things about you earlier, uh, Ambassador Kirk, but I'd like to just mention that um, Ambassador Kirk has been a uh, British uh, ambassador for many, many years, diplomat, uh, was the ambassador to Finland. Uh, Finland, by the way, is very much in the news uh, right now. Uh, and um, uh, he's also worked in the private sector quite extensively. Uh, we really got to know him uh, when he was a senior official at Vodafone, uh, and we were doing some work uh, with, that, uh, with that company. But he really helps our clients in understanding uh, multinational complex issues, uh, sometimes rep reputational issues uh, and the like, and uh, is just a, uh, a very special uh, member of our team, as is uh, Ambassador Wisner. So, Ambassador Kirk, let me uh, turn it over to you, if I, if, I, if I may. Thank you very much indeed, Secretary Stato, and I'm sorry to have been a little bit late joining. I know, however, that I will uh, have warmly agreed with everything Ambassador Wisner said, so um i will if, if i may just pick up a couple of uh, issues from a european perspective and then look a little bit at what i've been experiencing over the last two months in uh, discussions with uh, boardrooms in europe and uh, and some in the us as well uh, as they adjust to the new uh, situation so just uh, three quick things really from a European perspective, everything that Ambas Ambassador Wisner described, 
is causing a, a fundamental rethink in a number of areas of European policy. The most important of those being defense. Um, I think that the, there were two aspects of European policy really driven in large part by Germany. Um, one was the so-called Ostpolitik, uh, which dates back to the 1960s to Chancellor Willy Brandt um, about engagement with Russia. And uh, the other was the idea of um, change through trade. Um, the idea that building trading relationships would in and of itself help to bring about um, political change in a liberalizing direction. And I think what we've seen in the last two months is that um, uh, both of those policies which were broadly adopted uh, as policies of the European Union um, have been proven uh, in the first case not to work and in the second case actually to lead to a pretty catastrophic result uh, for Ukraine. Um, as a result of that, a lot of rethinking is going on. I think the first um, element of that is that NATO, which the president of France famously two years ago declared to be brain dead, um, is now front and central in uh, Europe's uh, defense and strategic policy. Uh, a revitalization of the transatlantic relationship, but also a revitalization of NATO as an organization with the uh, serious prospect of both Finland and Sweden joining NATO in the coming weeks, um, uh, thereby adding another 1,300 kilometers of direct frontier with Russia. Um, another example of how Putin's um, miscalculation over Ukraine is bringing about the exact opposite of the effects he was trying to achieve. But perhaps more significantly for the long term, also adding very serious military capability to NATO in the north. Um, I, I think it's fair to say if you look at NATO's recent enlargements in the balance between uh, increase in threat and increase in capability, uh, it has probably been more uh, on the threat side than the capability side. Um, with Finland and Sweden, I think that will adjust the balance back uh, a bit on the capability side. You're also seeing debates in a number of major European countries, not least Germany, um, about increase in defense budgets. The second big effect, Ambassador Wisner was uh, alluding to this just now, is on energy policy. Uh, in 2014, after the annexation of Crimea, uh, Europe declared that it needed to become less reliant on Russia for its sources of energy. Uh, and over the last eight years, it has in fact significantly increased that reliance um, with the result uh, that some European countries, and again, notably Germany, are put in the incredibly uncomfortable position of effectively having to continue to provide funding, uh, which is sustaining Putin's uh, war effort um, uh, because uh, they are uh, having to buy uh, gas in particular from Russia. Um, so a big move already uh, in train to make Europe far less dependent on, um, on Russia for energy. And I think one byproduct of that um, and a positive byproduct of it will be a very rapid acceleration in uh, sustainable energy technologies in Europe. 
solar, wind, um, uh, hydro, and so forth. <clears throat> and then the, the final area I, I, I would talk about, which is linked to both of those, is um, a, a concept which emerged uh, from President Macron uh, a few years ago of strategic autonomy. The language on that is changing a little bit more towards uh, strategic sovereignty. Um, uh, that doesn't mean any reduction of focus on, um, uh, on the importance of Europe being less dependent on powers who could turn out to be hostile. Um, but the, dif the distinction between autonomy and sovereignty uh, being one in, in which um, major alliances with friendly powers are um, uh, are easier to contemplate. And clearly the United States is at the top of the list of those, uh, but also countries like uh, Japan, um, Canada, obviously Australia, <coughs> and uh, over time, potentially India as well, though that is a, a much more complex debate. Let me turn very quickly to the boardroom. And I think it's fair to say that uh, a lot of the boards I have been talking to have uh, found it quite hard to come to terms with the scale of adjustment they need to make. Um, hard to come to terms with the idea that the uh, liberalized trading order, the essentially uh, do what you want wherever you want approach to business um, that we've had for the last 30 years uh, has gone. And we're back into a world in which uh, business technology cannot be neutral um, and in which uh, where you trade, where you do business, where you invest uh, is an indicator, but also an exposure um, to risk. Uh, there are four main issues that boards have been grappling with, particularly those with um, operations in Russia. Uh, what to do with their employees has been strong among those, what to do with their operations, how to salvage value that they have there. And I would note uh, on that that um, one of the first major corporate announcements about involvement in Russia by a British company, BP, uh, was to walk away from, effectively walk away from their Russian investment. In doing so, incurring, incurring a loss of around $25 billion. Um, so companies are facing up to some major decisions here. Then the effect on trade, um, on supply chains, uh, some of the uh, sensitive materials Ambassador Wisner was alluding to, but also um, the spread of both sanctions, uh, the implications of sanctions and of export controls, um, uh, the European Union, the United Kingdom, uh, like the United States have, have essentially ex extended their export control regimes uh, to cover any recipient in Russia, irrespective of use, and uh, financial restrictions. And I know uh, some of my colleagues are going to talk more about uh, the sanctions picture in a minute. The one point I would make um, on that, which I think is extremely important uh, to be aware of, is that while there is very close coordination between the US, the EU and the UK uh, on putting sanctions in place and the broad effect and purposes of the sanctions are very similar. The way in which the sanctions regimes operate is significantly different in some respects. 
And I have several times been talking to US-based companies who've sort of said, well, we've done all our sanctions compliance stuff in the US, so we're, we assume we're okay. Um, to which the answer is very probably not. You need to look at uh, exactly how all three of the major sanctions regimes works in order to be sure uh, that you are properly compliant. Um, and then the final thing I'd say, which really picks up on where Ambassador Wisner um, uh, ended, uh, I have uh, given the following two points as a framework for strategic options to every board I've spoken to. The first is, uh, assume this is going to last 10 years. Uh, you'll be wrong, but you'll be closer to right than if you assume it's going to last 10 months or 10 weeks. And the second is, do not assume that you will be able still to do tomorrow what you are able to do today. The sanctions environment, both on, the, on our side, as it were, and on the Russian side, is highly dynamic. Um, and, uh, and we're finding new things are cropping up um, literally every week and sometimes on a daily basis in one or other sanctions regime. Let me hand it back uh, with that and thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Ambassador. And um, um, Jenna and um, Denise, what we'd like to do now is to prepare for opening it up for uh, Q&A. Uh, but I do have three other colleagues and I'd like for them to just take a moment to say uh, a bit about um, themselves so that you know where you might want to target some of the questions. Uh, let me just um, say that uh, Frank Samolis really is the co-chair of our international uh, practice, has been in this space for decades and has a presence and reputation that is um, admired and applauded uh, really across the globe, uh, clearly in all of the places where we have office uh, offices and a presence. Uh, Mila, Mila is a newly minted partner. We are so excited about uh, her recent um, elevation and just a tremendous uh, lawyer. Uh, and then uh, Rodney, Rodney Emery has really just joined the firm with um, significant um, uh, experience on the Hill and the White House uh, and just really brings um, a, a lot of insight uh, and um, uh, and knowledge as well. Uh, really doing a lot on the um, uh, African continent. We hope to do more uh, and we're excited about uh, Rodney joining us. But let me just turn to each of them individual uh, to say uh, a brief word or two and then we'll just get right into uh, the Q&A. So Frank, let's start with you and then we'll go to Mila and then uh, close out with Rodney. Great, many thanks Rodney. And uh, as always, I appreciate the wisdom of ambassadors Wisner and Kirk, uh, Denise, Ms. Carter, thank you for having us back again. Very quickly, uh, Mila and I uh, are prepared to discuss issues relating to international trade. Um, by way of background, uh, Ambassadors Wisner and Kirk did talk about the global repercussions of what's happening, not only geopolitically, but in the private sector to supply chains. The international institution designed to attempt to control and regulate those flows is the World Trade Organization, mm -hmm. which historically has created rounds of trade discussions. Uh, they are going to be meeting, as just announced yesterday, holding a ministerial conference in mid-June. Uh, it's an exciting time for the WTO. They may be kicking off a new round of negotiations for the first time. 
They have a woman as director general and an African woman at that as director general. So I'm prepared to answer any questions you might have about what's going on in the WTO, as well as what's going on with free trade agreements. There's a lot of talk about that in the Trump administration. Uh, there is still uh, an atmosphere of interest in discussions with the UK, with Europe, uh, discussions with India on trade and Brazil. Uh, and Mila, I think, will talk maybe just in her intro a little bit about what the U.S. Congress is doing with respect to uh, China and legislation and sanctions. So I'll leave it at that and in here, and we'll stay here to answer any questions you may have. Thank you, Rodney. Thanks, Frank. Mila? Yeah, so I'm happy, as, as Frank indicated, to, to answer questions about sort of the dynamic between the executive branch and the in Congress on trade issues. Um, it's not sort of, it, the tr Biden administration has sort of reconfigured how it views its trade agreement priorities uh, before they were driven very strongly by tariff liberalization, eliminating or reducing tariffs on goods and building the agreement around that. And White House officials will tell you that that is not what they consider to be the focus of a trade agreement now. Um, for them right now, it's about worker centric but what worker-centric trade agreements mean is still sort of in the air and fuzzy. Uh, and so right now, the biggest focus is on this Indo-Pacific economic framework and what that will mean and what that will entail and what countries will be involved and what commitments will be involved. Um, and there's just a lot more questions than answers, but we know that it's not going to be a trade agreement in the way that we've traditionally seen them. Um, and so happy to answer questions about that. The competitiveness bill moving through Congress um, and miscellaneous tariff bill, generalized system of preferences, any of those things. So. Okay, thanks, Mila. Rodney? Thank you. Uh, good afternoon or good morning, everyone. Uh, Rodney Emery here. Uh, just want to touch on, on just a couple of points uh, with regards to Africa. I think folks, if uh, they have you been monitoring the latest there, uh, early in 2020, the Trump administration uh, began negotiations uh, with Kenya, which would have represented the first uh, free trade agreement for Sub-Saharan Africa. That in itself would have been uh, historic, uh, both from a perspective that, if, if I uh, recall my uh, statistics correctly, we're the fourth largest trading partner for Kenya. Uh, I think we're their second largest export market. Uh, but it would have been transformative from a standpoint of really helping shift and further strengthen those local markets and, and local economies. Unfortunately, uh, with the coming of the Biden administration, such negotiations have, have been basically uh, put on the shelf until the administration has finalized its, its trading uh, trade policy priorities moving forward. Where I wish to also shift our attention is uh, the U.S. Uh, policy with regards to Africa uh, appears to still be centered around AGOA, uh, the African Growth Opportunity Act, uh, which is a huge uh, uh, program where I think there are over uh, 1,800 goods that are allowed uh, free uh, tariffs uh, to enter into the U.S. market. Uh, that's still the centerpiece uh, for the economic policy as it relates to the continent. But uh, going back to the potential of the U.S.-Kenya Free Trade Agreement, uh, there uh, lends itself to uh, influencing uh, the potential of the African Continental uh, Free Trade Agreement, which was established last year. Uh, this is huge from a standpoint that you're talking about the inclusion of 1.3 billion people 
and the participation list of 55 countries within the continent. Uh, you're talking about, again, shifting and strengthening of economies and local markets, uh, which can translate into uh, better quality of life, uh, better uh, access to healthcare, better access to technology. Uh, in a nutshell, it's, it's a game changer uh, that could really be transformative for the continent. I wish to uh, finally just conclude uh, this brief overview with regards to uh, reiterating uh, that uh, the US-Africa policy uh, is expected to come out officially sometime, I think, this summer. I think that the latest by, by August. So it'll give us a, a framework and a footprint of understanding how do we move forward and how do we engage the continent. I think, respectively speaking, I think uh, Ambassador uh, Wisner and Secretary Slater and, and Ambassador Kirk will appreciate that. With administrations, when it comes to Africa, there tends to be a shift. Sometimes certain administrations will prioritize humanitarian aid and assistance and focusing on uh, establishing and supporting democracies where other administrations will focus on trade and investment. Oftentimes there's a split with regards to the US Congress where those resources and where the focus and the prioritization should go. But there's certainly a thirst and a desire on, on, on behalf of many African leaders uh, for greater trade, greater investment, because they see how it translates into their economies, into their markets, how it translates into the quality of life of their residents. But even more importantly, it allows them to have their framework to where they can engage on a much more global basis when it comes to trading partners with exports and imports. So I'll conclude with, uh, with that overview. Back to you, Secretary Slater. Okay, thanks, Rodney. And uh, I think um, this piece on Africa actually sets up uh, hopefully our discussion, because it's been mentioned, this um, great power competition, uh, Africa is at the center of it. Uh, both uh, the U.S. and China in particular uh, have a focus on the continent. And frankly, um, uh, China uh, may be a bit more uh, uh, successful, at, at least at the current time. Uh, now, we can debate that, uh, and I would love to debate it, because I think we're in better shape than we think. Uh, but uh, I'll just conclude by saying that the uh, AGOA uh, framework for our US um, uh, dealings with Africa was actually put in place by uh, a native Arkansan, President uh, William Jefferson Clinton. And we have been building on that uh, ever since. And as a democratic president, as Rodney noted, uh, he really pivoted from just that focus on humanitarian aid uh, to one of trade. And uh, I, I just think uh, that was quite significant and uh, wish to underscore that as we open uh, our discussion. Uh, but um, uh, Jenna, uh, clearly I'll need some help with, from you and Denise to identify. Yeah. <laughs> Slater, yes, I have a few questions here that I'd like to pose to this esteemed panel. Um, okay. And picking up on what you said, Secretary Slater, um, I'm just going to ask Rodney Emery to just kind of chime in a little bit more and follow up on the Algoa matter and just kind of how it's how we built on it and how it's going to you know create more opportunity for Africa. So Rodney Emery, if I could ask you to address that. Happy to, uh, I, you know, I, I think from the standpoint of really aligning itself with regards to industries and identifying where in particular, I'm assuming uh, from a US perspective, I know when I was at the Department of Commerce, uh, there was the National Export Initiative where there was a focal point of understanding and trying to ascertain 
what are the market access issues and how do our American companies, how are they positioned to be more competitive uh, with regards to those markets that they're looking to enter? I think uh, there was a study at the time that indicated a vast majority of uh, American businesses were not exporting. Uh, those that were, were only exporting in one market. So obviously providing our U.S. businesses with the information, the data, the details to be successful. So you don't want to push or promote our companies to go abroad and fail. You want to put them in a position where they can actually succeed. And I think what's underestimated is having that data, having the analysis, but more importantly, identifying the markets where uh, U.S. companies can be aligned with those respective industries within that uh, targeted market. So I think looking at the initiatives of the Department of Commerce, uh, looking at the um, the, the work that USTR is pursuing with regards to making sure that U.S. companies have the competitive, uh, that they're competitive with regards to market access and making sure that those, uh, those, those barriers are addressed, I think are, are ongoing issues for USTR, but I know they work on that daily. But uh, I think, I hope that sort of answers the question with regards yeah. to how you take advantage of AGOA. AGOA is set to expire in 2025. Right. So right. That's, that's a huge question that uh, this administration and this Congress, I think, need to grapple with. And, and, and my, my sense, there's bipartisan support uh, to continue it. But you also have to balance that, as I mentioned, with this African Continental Free Trade Agreement, as well as if Trade Promotion Authority is going to be renewed, which has expired. So is the administration going to take the path of, hey, we're going to work alone with regards to this policy, or are we going to work with Congress in a bipartisan fashion to try to turn the corner with some of these free trade agreements that that will essentially provide more opportunities for those trading partners as well as with our U.S. companies. Yeah, and Jenna, if I could just add two quick things. Uh, one is, um, I think it's important for us to recognize that when it comes to U.S.-Africa trade, it's not just about U.S.-Africa. It is really at the center of this great power competition. And uh, China with its Belt and Roads Initiative, I mean, it is serious across the continent investing in their infrastructure. We really need uh, to do a lot to catch up there. Finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the name Ron Brown. Uh, Ron was a partner in our firm before he went to lead the DNC to help President Clinton get elected and to help him uh, bring into being a GOA as the Commerce Secretary. And so we, <laughs> just as a, a matter of great pride, uh, take a moment to uh, remember his memory, his contribution, uh, and his love for uh, this change in direction when it comes to U.S.-Africa um, uh, trade rather than just aid. Uh, but back to you. I, I don't want to... Well, you uh, know, Secretary Slater, what we can say is his legacy lives on, doesn't it, and the fine work that he did in the Clinton administration. I'm going to turn just, just a minute. As do I, was I see speaking. Denise there? Do you, Jenna, do you see Denise? She's raising hey. her hand. You guys know Africa is my Sorry. passion. Africa is absolutely my passion. Um, the World Trade Center, we were the first Africa trade desk in all of the World Trade Centers was here in Arkansas. So what I would really want to make sure that the, the businesses in the state know and recognize that we are, we are really focused on doing business in Africa, and that's really important. There is a great opportunity for Arkansas companies to be engaged in Africa in a very dynamic way and lead the country in doing business. There is so much opportunity for you to move products, services, and goods in and out of the continent. So um, 
you know, uh, as, as they are speaking about it, I'm just lighting up in every possible way. I'm levitating off my seat because it's like, I think Africa is the key to the success for Arkansas companies and for those African countries that we work with that really have dynamic growth and creating jobs. And we are very, very passionate about that here. So please take notes and feel free to reach out to us in the office about this because it's really, it, that is my secret passion. That's it right there. So I'm sorry, I just had to say something. So go ahead, Jenna, I'll let you, I'll, I'll, I'll shut back up. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> well, was great. We'll follow, we'll follow up with you on this and you should know that we're hosting the ambassador of Ethiopia uh, this afternoon and one of the, one of the leading uh, members of the administration from the continent. So wonderful. Wonderful. We'll follow up with you. We'll Thank follow you. up. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds, you know, that's great. Denise, that was wonderful. I am, um, I'm going to turn for just a minute because we talk about the power struggle between mm -hmm. the U.S. and China. So mm -hmm. I know that the uh, U.S. is kind of very strict and watching China now. And one of the things that I know that's about to go in, in effect is the, um, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act the mm -hmm. USLPA, and I don't know if um, maybe Mr. Smallis, could you talk to that a minute? Can't hear you if you're on. Yeah. Oh, there yeah, you go. Perfect, yeah, me, uh, Mila, if you can, that's great. Okay, terrific. Uh, there has been a lot of concern in the Congress on uh, the issue with the weed and possibly sanctioning them, it's been brought into a larger bill called the Competes Act, which uh, Mila has been tracking. So I'm going to turn it over to her to give a quick summary on that legislation. Well, well, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act actually was enacted at the end of last year, just, just to be clear. And this is the one that would create a rebuttable presumption that all goods made in China's Xinjiang region, as well as um, certain other parts of China, um, if you it, it requires sort of some identification of other other parts uh rebuttable presumption that they they uh violate existing u.s law prohibiting the importation of goods that are made with forced prison or indentured labor so this law has been on the books for almost 100 years it wasn't enforced for a very long time um just because it had a really big big exception called the consumptive demand exception that was revoked by congress about five or six years ago so since then, you've seen CBP get more aggressive in its enforcement because a lot of the commodities that we talk about in this area are things that are not made in the U.S. in sufficient quantities, which is what consumptive demand was about. So uh, USLIPA is, which is not, not a phenomenal acronym, but it's a much easier, faster way than saying the five letters every time. Um, obviously, that's garnered a lot of interest because, you know, a rebuttable presumption, you know, the, the import prohibition already existed there was already a rebuttable presumption that existed on goods from North Korea, but obviously really, really narrow implementation. You flip up, just sort of blows this up into a much bigger supply chain question for importers. So that rebuttable presumption goes into effect in June. Uh, funny enough, June is also the deadline by which customs is supposed to explain how it plans to implement it. So that is sort of a, potentially a little flaw in the law that sort of made the due date for an implementation plan the same as the day that the law goes into effect. So I can tell you all, huge area of focus in Congress, um, as, as Frank indicated, is, is also gonna be sort of implementation of this. Um, I think it came out this week that Customs is going to start sending questions, questionnaires out to importers that they think might get captured in this. So think those commodities like, I think cotton, obviously big area of focus, and tomatoes, 
um, just sort of those kinds of things. And then I think customs is making an effort to get some level of guidance out before the rebuttable presumption goes into effect. So what does that mean for companies? It is all about supply chain due diligence and um, transparency right now. So if you touch China, um, if you touch that region of China, strongly suggest that you are talking to your suppliers, talking to your compliance team, and you're sort of ready. Um, the way that this rebuttable presumption gets enforced, we really don't know, but the bottom line is goods that are found to fall into this net won't be able to get into the United States, absent mm -hmm. a showing that they are not made with forced labor. <clears throat> and that is going to be a high bar. The rebuttable presumption is, is going to be a high bar. So this is something that probably easier to talk to you, know, you directly about, but um, as Frank indicated, also an area of interest in um, the China bill. Uh, so that the competitiveness bill that's currently pending, but just to be clear, you know, UFLIPA is coming. We're probably like six to eight weeks away from implementation and, you know, supply chain impacts could be real if this is an area of the world that you, um, that your supply chain is such. Right. And it also, I guess, would be like when um, someone has a product they're making here for export, where are they getting that parts and pieces of that product? That's what we're I'm talking about, China. yeah. You have to deal. You have to dig really deep in the supply chain to yep. get the transparency expected by this legislation. Mm. So, no, that's very helpful for this group. Um, I'm going to also stay with like free trade agreements for a minute, and I know that the UK and the US have been kind of working on one. I don't know um, whether Mr. Smolis is that's your team or if that is Master Kirk. So either way, it's, it touches oh. the UK. So. Um, mm -hmm. I'd love to hear from both of you on that. And just to add on one more piece to that question, so I'll make it a little bit more meaty. So we're talking about the free trade agreements between the UK and US, but then I'd also like for us to talk about the opportunities that US can see with the UK due to Brexit. So mm -hmm. kind of like a two-tiered, so I'm not sure who wants to start with the big question about free trade agreement negotiation. Okay, Ambassador Kirk, I'm happy to let you kick off. I can chime in afterwards if you're still there. I'm, I'm really sorry. I've, I've got a rather bad connection. I didn't get the question. Could you uh, possibly repeat it? That would be very good. Of course. Of course. It's kind of, it's, it's two questions in one. So first, I would love, we'd love for someone to talk about the free trade agreement between the U.S. and U.K. And then out of that, um, we recognize that there are opportunities in the U.K. due to Brexit. So I'd love to have a discussion and your view on that. Both of those have kind of been stimulated by um, the Minister of Trade visiting Arkansas not too long ago and then visiting Texas and other part in other states. So we're kind of seeing some glimmer of hope that there may be some action out of our state. So free trade agreement and opportunities due to Brexit. Those are the two questions really. I'm so sorry, I'm still not getting it. I'm going to dial in. So I'll be back with you in about one minute. Okay. okay. So Frank, maybe you can start uh, based on your um, sure. interpretation of the question. Mm -hmm. Sure, happy to, and Mila, feel free to join in. Oh yeah, um, yeah, Mila as well. The discussions, uh, the discussions of a free trade agreement with the UK really started uh, under the Trump administration, uh, actually back before the UK left the European Union. So it, it proposed a tremendous legal hurdle that Realistically, the U.S. could not enter into a free trade agreement with one member of the EU and not the others. However, the Brexit situation took care of that legal 
issue with respect to entering into an FTA. Um, there are talks going on. In fact, this second session of discussions are taking place this week in Scotland. Um, Ambassador Tai and uh, UK Trade Minister Trevelyan are speaking. It is not a free trade agreement in the traditional sense. Remember, as Rodney Emery said, the legal authority for negotiating free trade agreements expired and needs to be reviewed before any free trade agreement from the U.S. can be implemented. Now, that doesn't prevent discussions of a free trade agreement. So the Kenya agreement theoretically could be resumed. The U.K. agreement is being resumed. But I would not be tremendously optimistic about any result in the near future. Number one, uh, there's a question of the extension of the Trade Promotion Authority. Number two, there's a huge political problem in our Congress. Remember, very quickly, free trade agreements are not treaties. Uh, they're not self-executing, which means our Congress has to approve them. And our Congress is very concerned with the Good Friday Agreement from uh, the Clinton administration and making sure that is not disrupted in any way. So. Uh, beginning with Speaker Pelosi, there's a great deal of interest that any potential free trade agreement with the UK not jeopardize the Good Friday Agreement. So with TPA authority, Good Friday Agreement, the restrictions I've mentioned, there are a lot of hurdles before we get to a free trade agreement with the UK. But I don't want to be all that uh, pessimistic and throwing cold water. Perhaps Mila can offer her comments to then Ambassador Kirk can join in. No, I defer to um, Ambassador Kirk to add more. I think um, I think the UK would like something more, and the administration just is not um, ready to negotiate those things. But you know, the two three two tariffs solution that came together was a huge step forward, um, and the talks. A lot of what the administration is negotiating with its partners now are sort of things like the IPEF, like the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, things where we can come together around a common set of values and policies um, that don't necessarily require congressional approval. Um, but it looks like Ambassador Kirk's back online, so. I, I am, and I'm sorry about that. Um, so just to say, I think from the UK end, there is uh, acceptance, while well, there's still an aspiration for a sort of large and ambitious free trade agreement, there is acceptance that that is very unlikely to happen in the short term. And, uh, and so really um, two things I think are being looked at. One is what Mila has just mentioned, these um, uh, more limited types of more technical uh, facilitation agreement. And the other is that uh, the UK is making quite a concentrated effort to have state level agreements. I think there are um, 11 or 12 of those currently being looked at now clearly uh, what a state can agree, uh, either Frank or Miller, uh, I'm, I'm sure could correct me, but it's much more limited than, than what, uh, um, what can be agreed uh, at, at, the, uh, at the federal level. Um, but nonetheless, the UK does have quite uh, substantial trading relationships with some ind individual states, and there may be things that can be done there which, uh, which facilitate and, and improve that. Um, just Frank Simonis mentioned the Good Friday Agreement, and I, I would say there has been some progress on that uh, in talks between the UK and the European Commission, um, but not to the extent of finding a full resolution. 
Um, we're in a very sensitive period in Northern Ireland because there are elections happening at the beginning of May. Um, I don't think anything uh, major will happen before the result of those elections is known. Um, but those elections will, to some extent, demonstrate the strength of feeling or divisiveness that the current arrangements are having. And that, I think, will um, inform decisions that the British government subsequently takes about the extent to which it wants to push hard on the Good Friday Agreement, which could cause um, some awkwardness uh, in the US-UK relationship. Uh, or the extent to which it wants to carry on um, with essentially technical talks, producing uh, small agreements as they go along. Ukraine is also very much in the background here. The, uh, the need for the UK to work with its European partners um, is obviously uh, very evident. And, um, and I think there is quite a strong desire on both sides not to disrupt that, the only person who would draw comfort from uh, that kind of disruption would, would be President Putin. Yeah. Okay. Jenna. Um, thank you. Um, I see that we're about 11.29. So, well, <laughs> one minute left on my clock. I don't know if we have time for another question or Ronnie, you want to wrap this up? Either way, it's fine with me. Okay. Well, why don't we wrap it up? But I think uh, what we're discovering is that uh, there is, um, you know, an interest in a, a fuller discussion of some of these issues. And um, I don't want to necessarily speak for my colleagues. They do well speaking for themselves. <laughs> but um, I think we would welcome the opportunity to follow up on any particulars uh, that you might have. And, um, you know, we could do another uh, session or so a bit later um, if you find that that's of importance to you. So uh, let me just say that. And then let me close with this. I, you know, when I um, joined the administration in um, officially in uh, June of, um, of 1993, the president had just been elected and uh, we were you know, sort of getting comfortable with this, quote, new order. Uh, and I remember early on being invited uh, to actually travel in, on what was called a CODEL at the time. That was members of Congress with members of the administration going to various locations. Uh, and we were looking at um, transportation matters, infrastructure investment, much like today. Uh, but our first stop was Russia. Uh, we actually started in uh, St. Petersburg, ended up in Moscow. Uh, there was a little known mayor uh, at the time of St. Petersburg and his <laughs> name was Putin. And um, I remember our interaction uh, with him. He, he appeared to be rather shy at the time uh, and clearly reserved. Uh, I only say that to say um, our objective at that point was to see Russia and later China, you know, the president uh, fought for China to be added to the WTO. The objective was to really establish economic ties so as to minimize military conflict and tension. Uh, and it's been stated that, you know, that was a, a policy across uh, Europe um, as well. And, um, you know, all of it didn't work maybe as we had hoped, but there were 
some very, very positive uh, results. And I think as Ambassador Wisner has said, if we can get back to some kind of balance, right? Where we recognize the sovereignty and the autonomy of, of all nations to take care of their own business, but also the need for alliances and again, balance that we might be able to temper some of these tensions that seem to um, really threaten the very existence of the world as we know it. Um, I mean, when you start talking about nuclear weapons and as has been noted, when you start providing supplies and there is some disruption of that supply line through attacks or bombings or that nature, uh, you really have the potential for escalation uh, to a degree that um, we can't, I don't think, fully fathom right now. Uh, and so hopefully organizations like this one, uh, through efforts like this, that lead to the kinds of opportunities that we've discussed, can help uh, cooler heads prevail, uh, where we're sort of guided by, as Lincoln would say, the better angels of our nature. Right. Uh, so thank you again for the opportunity. We very much appreciate it. And please let us know it as we might be helpful um, going forward. Thanks, Denise. Thanks, Jenna. Thanks to all of your team. Well, thanks everybody for participating and, and for all the words of wisdom and the wonderful information. I really appreciate you taking time out of your days to be with me and, and rushing through um, the train station to get to us. So thank you um, for everybody. Um, we have people from all over the world that are participating in the call. So I want to thank them for, for taking the time out of their schedule to even listen to us today. Um, uh, world Trade Center was started for um, peace and stability through trade. So at one point or time, countries that traded together were nicer to each other. And, you know, my great grandmother used to always say, show and practice kindness, and that will take us very far. So on that note, I will close and I look forward to hearing from you. If you all have any questions, please feel free to give me an email. And I hope everybody has a wonderful and safe and blessed and prosperous day. Thank you so much for everything. I do greatly appreciate your time and commitment to us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.